What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you, you, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Oh, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows faith, shows favor to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God. He will lift you up. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that we may humble ourselves before you and be lifted up. Amen. There are quite a few points in Scripture where a choice is put before people. Uh, the, perhaps the most famous one is where Joshua says to the people, you either serve God or you don't. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the Lord or will you serve the false gods? For me and for my household, we will serve the Lord. The point Joshua is making that's made many times in the Bible is you can't have a foot in both camps. You have to make a decision or you will fall over. It's the same choice that the evangelist puts before a congregation today as he invites people to come forward and make a decision for Christ, Christian or not, believer or not, disciple or something else. Now, of course, I don't come here today in one sense to put that choice before you because you've made a choice. That's why you're here. You have decided to follow Jesus. There was a time where lots of people came to church because, well, that's what good people did. But those days are long beside, behind us. If we are here today, then presumably we're here because we are wanting to be God's people. We've either made a decision for Jesus or, or, or we're certainly wanting to explore what that's about if we're not there yet. We've committed ourselves to him. And for some of us, that's quite amazing. Amazing that we made that choice and maybe amazing that we're still there, <laughs> hanging on for some folk. For some folk, it's been a big thing just to turn on this broadcast this morning or tune in or, or, or to be here in church. But of course, that's not the end of the story of grace. Not just that one choice, but the daily living it out. That's what James is all about. 
Why does it have to be so ridiculously hard? It does seem sometimes like our, our Christian life is, is one big battle. We find ourselves doing things that we know are wrong. We find ourselves living ways that we know are wrong. We find ourselves torn all the time by trying to work out what it's about. We, we, we find ourselves sometimes, for large parts of our lives, we seem to be a million miles away from God. And if you're a Christian and you haven't experienced that, then you've probably not been awake. The book of James is all about we believe, but how do we live it? How do we live that faith out in our works day by day? And he particularly talks about the bits that we all know are really difficult. He starts off with, how, how do you do it in trials when things are tough? He, he then goes on to say, how do we do it in how we treat people and, and love people? And, 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 and gosh, as we saw last week, in how we speak, how we use words, because that lets so much away. James constantly asking, well, you say you've got faith, but what difference does it make to how you react to things and treat people and speak? The easy bit is singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. The hard bit is following him. That's the difficult bit that we always struggle with. And James, in our passage today, starts with something that's quite strange. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Where do they come from? Now, this is really interesting because the first thing that when we get a New Testament letter and it talks about fights and quarrels is all the New Testament scholars say, well, what exactly what fights and quarrels are, are, are talked about here? And as we go through the different letters, and you, you maybe had a preacher tell you a bit of the background to, to some of them, what they're, what, they're, what they're contesting, what they're fighting, Galatians about whether Christians should be circumcised, and, 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 and Philippians about the false teachers, and Corinthians, it's about sex and money and things that churches don't fall, about, fall over about anymore, do they? Yeah. So when we read this letter, we're, we're left thinking, well, what is it that's going on in, in, in for James and his people that they're falling out over? And then we have to remember that James isn't a letter written to one distinct group of people. He starts off by saying, I'm writing to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, which is shorthand for Christians everywhere, Jewish Christians, Christians with a Jewish background particularly maybe, but Christians everywhere. So what James seems to be saying here is every church, doesn't matter where you are, I may not know your church, I may not know what's going on, but I can bet that there are fights and quarrels among you. I'm so glad that we're in the Church of Scotland and that doesn't happen. Of course, if you're in a church, you know exactly what that's all about. Why is it that the church cannot speak, we cannot speak in our community life unequivocally about God's love? Because in churches, there is gossip and squabble and pettiness and high-handedness and thoughtlessness and strife and offense and division and blame and criticism and huffs and prides and all matter of rubbish. And that's just last week. And most of you have been around churches long enough to know that this is so true. I, I, I always, um, when we got new people into church, and the, the same will be true here of the few new folk we've, we've, we've had in, in lockdown, there's been some folk joining us, and they'll often say to me, new people in the church, I, I really like the church 
people are so friendly and so thoughtful and so welcoming and so nice. And my response normally is, just you wait. <laughs> if you're really going to come and be part of a church, just be ready because sometimes people are nasty and petty and say the most offensive things. And by the way, we've all done it. Conflicts and dispute. For many years, there was a conflict in Afghanistan. It went on for years and years. In fact, I think it's just recently that the final troops are, are pulling out. And the interesting thing about that was you didn't hear anything for it for months. And then suddenly, there'd be an explosion. There'd be an uprising. There'd be something that went wrong. And churches can be a bit like that, can't they? Just suddenly, from nowhere, there's a bit of conflict comes along. But it's not just churches that are like that. All our relationships are like that. Marriages, families, friendships, they're peaceful for a while, and then suddenly, bang. We all know this, the conflicts. Where do these things, these fights and quarrels come from, asks James. Dig a little deeper. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Fights among you come from within you. Yeah, see that? Among you, from within you. See, sometimes we look for the reason for a fight. X has happened, Y has happened. These are just the details, folks. Why are there fights in churches? Why are there fights in relationships? Because we're human. Why are there fights in marriages? Because I married a sinner. So did she. That's the reality of it, isn't it? Something within us. It's not so much the details sometimes of the quarrel or the fight. It's the people. It's us. Something deep within us. The fault line in most churches isn't between the people who think Y and the people who think X or the people who want that and the people who want this. The fault line is down the middle of every single one of us and who we are. We are the people who belong to Jesus. We are the people who have the Holy Spirit within us. We are the people who can sometimes do amazing things in Jesus' name. And if you've been around a church for a while, sometimes you're astounded when you see what people are quietly doing and quietly serving and amazing things that are done. And then, and then you see people getting it so badly low or wrong. And here's the thing. It's not that there's one group of people who are doing all these wonderful things in a church and another people who are doing the mean, selfish things. It's the same people, isn't it? Who just before breakfast do both. That's the reality. Where do the fights come from? They come from within. You may have been converted. You may have been born again. You may have decided to follow Jesus, but every day that same struggle that goes on. Remember that daft thing in 2003 after George Bush invaded Iraq with a bit of help from his pal Tony Blair? And then he stood on that aircraft carrier after they defeated Saddam and top of his, 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 his statue. And he had a big banner and it said, mission accomplished, we've done it. Of course, I didn't really been accomplished at all, had it? It kept going on and on and on and on and on. Maybe there's an image there for us as Christians. Yes, the devil's been vanquished. Yes, Christ has won a victory, but there is going to be warfare going on and on and on because sin remains. The enemy's smashed, but he's still able to wreak that havoc in our lives and use it, by the way, to disturb the very thing that God has called together, his beloved church, his people. What's this all about? Well, James sums it up. 
in this, oh, we did that bit, didn't we? I keep doing this. I provide these nice slides with highlighted bit among us with, and then I forget to put them on. The next bit. You desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Here's what James is saying. We're supposed to want one thing as Christians. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. We have just prayed that, haven't we? May your kingdom come. May your will be done. But here's the reality. I've got my agenda too. We're torn between the two. I want money. I want career success. I want to have a good time. I want it my way. I want respect. I want a nice house. I want a church to sing the songs I like. I want my family to be the way I want it to be. I want people to look at me and say it's good and all, all these other things I want. And they're not necessarily bad things. They can be quite good things that we want for ourselves and our family. The problem is that they're rubbish gods if they are our desire, our passion. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. and All these things will be added to you. But we don't do that, do we? We seek all these things and then we go, oh, can we have the kingdom of heaven too? And that's the problem. And so we struggle. And James says, as you're doing this, you kill. And you go, wait a minute, James, that's a wee bit much. I've done some pretty bad things, but I've not murdered anyone lately. But see, James is echoing his brother Jesus here, isn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you know, he who has got an angry thought has committed a murder. He who looks at a woman lustfully has committed an adultery. The point is he's coming not to the externals of what's going on, but to what's in the heart. If you hate your brother, if you call him a fool, if you put someone down with a, a clever put-down line, it's the same murderous self that's within you. This conflicted way of living, which wants my priorities, my agenda, my respect, my pride, my comfort, my happiness, and James says it just begins to touch your life. And the other thing it touches is your prayer life too. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive it because you ask with wrong motives. You see, when we pray to God, what we are giving God is the deepest desires of our hearts. And God, when we pray to him, isn't just listening to the words as we pray for all the things we we. we, we go through on the list. He's asking, what is our heart's desire? And here's the problem, that very often we're coming and we're saying all the things that we should say in prayer, but what's our heart's desire? Our heart's desire is that so-and-so would flip and well, get, you know, <laughs> the conflict, the rage within that's there. Or, or our heart's desire is about my plan, so I'm coming and I'm praying, Lord, I'm doing this, bless it, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Give me strength. Lord, this isn't going my way. Make it happen for me. Let my will be done. As I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Maybe I can twist thy will and thy kingdom round to my kingdom and my will. You see the conflict that's within? James actually said in the beginning of the letter, if you go right back to the first chapter, if you lack wisdom, ask God. And in the third chapter, he says, the wisdom that comes from heaven, this is the wisdom we should ask for, is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere, 
peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Can you imagine if that was the honest desire of ourselves as we came into church or as we related to one another? What difference that would make to the conflicts and the tensions among us? Wisdom that we were asking for, pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive, not about my will, but about your good and the things I love about you and I want God to do in you and his will for your blessing and for his church. You adulterous people, says James. Friendship with the world, friendship with God, which is it? I can illustrate this in this way. When I was a teenager, so about 10 years ago, I was sailing around the west of Scotland for, for a week with Scripture Union, and we sailed into the island of Iona, and I don't really remember much about that beautiful island, but I do remember this. The yacht that we were in um, was too big to get into the jetty, so what we had to do is get into a dinghy and, and go across on the little dinghy to, to the island and see around the island and take all our photos with my mother's camera that I had borrowed. Those were the days before you had your own camera. And so I'd taken all my pictures and I'd come back and we were in the dinghy and we got to the back of the yacht and I grabbed onto the rail of the back of the yacht from the dinghy. You know what's going to happen here, don't you? The yacht's going up and down and up and down and the wave came in, the yacht went that way, the dinghy went that way and I kept my feet in the yacht, in in the dinghy and my hands on the yacht to be secure and of course what happens? Well, you know exactly what's going to happen here, don't you? Splash, camera and all in the drink. If I'd held on to the boat and let go of the dinghy, I'd have had my toes in the water and been fine. If I'd let go of the yacht and stayed in the dinghy, I'd have been fine. But I tried to do both. I ended up in the water. I suspect a lot of us are there. That doing the splits. Trying to live for God and be for him. But we're trying to keep our feet in the dinghy as well with all the stuff that we want to James is clear. The boats are moving apart. You're a friend of God. That is going to bring you enmity with the world. There's going to be things that you have to give up. You know, I I quite often say to, to Christians this. How many hours are in a day? Very simple. How many hours in a day? 24, okay. How many hours in a Christian day? 24. So if you are going to do things to build your faith up, spend time in prayer, spend time in reading your Bible, come to Christian meetings, come to church where you're going to learn and grow together, you are going to have less hours to do other things. Maths, which means that you are not going to be able to keep doing all the things that all your non-Christian friends do, because the maths doesn't work. So before you start to think what's right and wrong, there's going to have to be a difference. I, you know, if, you, if you're raising children and you want them to be involved in Christian things, you cannot say, I want my children to have everything every other child has got. The maths doesn't work, never mind the ethics or the theology. If they're going to come to church, if they're going to be involved in the life of the church, if you're going to spend time having Christian friends and Christian community, there's stuff to give up. And I'd say, I'm not talking about bad things giving up, I'm just talking about making the thing fit. There's choices to be made. And that's before we start to think about all the desires and the cravings that we have that we are being called to give up. 
you know, that word adulterous sounds very harsh. And James has already said that God is jealous about the spirit within us. It's interesting, that word jealousy probably comes from Exodus 34, 14, where it says, do not worship any graven image, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want your wholehearted loyalty. When I married you, I didn't expect there to be three in the marriage, just you. And we might relate it to this as well, because that word jealousy also brings us to a place of great help, because there is a story in the book of Hosea where the prophet Hosea is told by God to go and marry a prostitute. Now, you might have thought that's okay, that's hard, but, you know, it'll be Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, she'll change, and they'll have a lovely life, a wonderful life, happily ever after. But it doesn't work like that because Hosea marries Gomer, who's a prostitute, and she keeps going back to being a prostitute again, and he keeps going back to get her again, bring her back again. And what God says is, this is like my love for my people. I want them to be wholehearted, but they're adulterous. And you think this is really hard language until you realize this, that God told Hosea, not just to marry a prostitute, but to love her and to keep loving her despite all the things that she would do. And when God chose us and called us, he did it knowing that we would be unfaithful. He did it knowing that we would battle. He did it knowing what we were like. And in grace, he loved us and called us to himself. And in grace, he continues to love us and call him to himself. And this is the gospel. This is the thing that changes all our thinking. This is the difference between religion and Christianity. It's not saying, here's a bunch of rules, be 100% devoted to them, and you will be fine with God. And then you go, I can't. It's to say, you have a gracious God who called you and sent his son to die for you that you might live for him. And he did that knowing that you would struggle and fall and he would keep loving you in that same grace. Just as God saves you by grace, so he enables you to live by that same grace. Martin Luther said the Christian life is a life of repentance. And it took me a long while to work out what that meant because I thought bad people repented when they became Christians. And he says, no. Here is the grace of God that he enables us to repent every single day. The image here of the jealous father is the father of the prodigal son. It's not just that he wants his son back with his whole heart. He yearns for him. He looks for him. He wants him to return from where he was. He mourns and weeps until the son comes back. And that's why there is tremendous, tremendous hope in the instruction at the end of this. Submit yourselves to God. Give yourselves back to him and keep doing it. Resist the devil. That's all the things that we've been talking about, the desires. Stand against it and it will flee from you because God will give you the grace to stand in his grace. Come near to him 
and he will draw near to you. You, you. you come with all your adulterous thoughts and all your conflicted ways. Come near to him. He's not going to run away from you. Like that father. You remember that prodigal son story? The, the son's come back. I'm awful. And I'm not worthy to be your son. He's got his wee speech already. And the father just looking for him, wanting to embrace him and, and take him back. And that's how God is with each one of us, even this morning. Yeah, you made a decision for me whenever you made it. But here, just make it again. Come back to me again. And yeah, I know what you're like. But let me start working in your heart by grace to change everything about you. Friendship with God. It's interesting that line, friendship with God, because the ultimate friend of God in, in the Bible is Abraham. And we've already met Abraham in the book of James. But James says, yeah, Abraham didn't just have faith, but Abraham, Abraham believed. And because of that, Abraham acted. But here's the thing, Abraham was believing a promise that told him that God had a future for him no matter what happened. Even when he got it wrong, and Abraham got it badly wrong at times. Abraham went to Egypt and thought, I want to keep myself safe, so I'll tell them that my wife is my sister so that if Pharaoh sleeps with her, he won't kill me. That's not really great morality, Abraham. Trying to save your skin. But yeah, he kept holding to the promise that God had given him, the promise that was put before him. Jesus said to his disciples, I don't call you servants anymore, but I call you friends. Friends, this is a battle. Battle that the Christian is involved in every day to follow, but it is a battle that we win when we draw once again to God, when we realize the privilege that we have, that this God takes back his adulterous people and does it again and again and again and gives us the strength to live and move and ground ourselves in his love. I'm going to end just now before um, Brian sings for us again, just by reading the passage, because sometimes when I've preached on it, I'm aware we've moved so far away from God's actual word. Just hear the passage again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the battles within you? You desire, but you do not have. You kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you do not have, so you do not ask God, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you realize that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he's called to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. And he will lift you up.